This episode is supported by Right Side Shirts, helping kids fully realize their creative potential. Their homepage has a quote that I think is something we can all get on board with pretty easily. Every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. That's by Pablo Picasso. So to help every child do just that, Right Side sells apparel that's been designed by kids who can submit their art and watch it get turned into things like shirts and phone cases and more. And all profits help fund art programs in need. The designs are truly amazing to see and even more amazing to learn which design was submitted by which student. So check out their site at rightsideshirts.org and help empower kids, promote creativity, and fund art programs in need. Think about your biggest guilty pleasure. Seriously, think about it right now. I'll wait a second. Maybe it's that really cheesy pop song that keeps playing on the radio. One minute you're all, psh, this song is lame. The next minute, you're belting it out into a fork in front of your very confused dog. Or maybe you've got the online shopping bug. I mean, it's just so easy and right there in your inbox. And those flash sales, forget about it. Or maybe you love telling that teeny, tiny, white lie. Nothing major, just enough to take the story from a 7 to a 10. As for me, my guilty pleasure involves two words. Ice cream. I love it all. Sundays and splits, sugar cones and waffle cones, extra large cups with extra large scoops and extra hot fudge. And don't even talk to me about kitty sizes. Kitty sizes are for quitters. Seriously, think about your biggest guilty pleasure. You know that feeling you're getting? That smile you can't hold back? The reason we love and seek out these guilty pleasures? There's something remarkable in there. A certain behavior that's more important to our work as creators than you know. Capturing this behavior or failing to do so can actually make or break entire careers and entire companies' approach to content. And that make-or-break moment is the conflict that we all face as craft-driven creators. On today's show, we'll identify this behavior and explore its very serious consequences, as well as the power that we can wield because of it. It's unthinkable. Hi there, and welcome to Unthinkable, a show about walking that fine line between creating stuff and being truly creative. I'm Jay Akunzo. And we start today's episode with a comparison of two activities that affect our work as content creators, one of which is uh, actually my guilty pleasure. And what we're about to discuss illustrates so much about the conflict that we sometimes feel when we feel fulfilled versus when others mess with our desire to do good work. The two activities that I'd like to explore today are eating ice cream and sweeping your floor. When you eat a bowl of ice cream, you're not thinking to yourself, how can I get to the end faster? Nobody tries to like outsource the eating of their ice cream. Nobody's saying to their friend, hey man, can you eat this ice cream for me? I just really want a dirty bowl. No, we'd, we'd never say that. The end result is not what matters to you in this or any pleasurable activity. The process matters, the experience of going through it. With ice cream, the eating matters. And so much so, by the way, that we find ways to make the process better. We actively look to improve it. 
So with ice cream, we sort of say to ourselves, hey, you know what would make this better? Some hot fudge, some whipped cream, some candy. That's how much we want to improve the process of eating ice cream. Now, compare all of that to sweeping your floor. The goal of you sweeping your floor isn't so you can have a good sweep. Nobody's at home thinking, okay, for five minutes a day, I just got to practice my sweeping form. Am I getting my knee bend right? How are my arms? Hey, honey, five more minutes, then I'll be ready to go out to dinner. I just love this process of sweeping. No, not at all. You would rather blink your eyes and just be done with it. And the entire point is to get to the end result, a clean floor. Now, there's a word for this, this desire to skip right to the end result, that actually comes from game theory. It's called telic, T-E-L-I-C, telic. Something that is telic is an activity that you do for the end result alone, aka a chore. You're doing this action solely to reach that end. In gaming, where it comes from, this is really important actually, because gaming is about enjoying the process. If something becomes telic, it means the game or that level or that experience is no fun to play anymore. So when you get stuck at level two in Super Mario, but you have to complete level one over and over and over again, just to get back to the point where you get stuck, that first level becomes known as telic, even though when you started, it was enjoyable. Telic, directed to a definite end, a chore. Here's the challenge that we all face as content creators. Marketing wants to turn creating content into a telic activity, a chore, something to do simply for the end result alone, which by the way, is not at all why any of us do it. Even the language marketers use to discuss creative work implies this telic mentality. They say things like deliverables, assets, even the word content, it's hollow sounding, it's factory made. Just think of some of the questions that you hear circulating the marketing blogosphere, the ones that frustrate and confuse us. Things like, how many words should a blog post be? Like there would be one set answer. Or how many times a week should I publish? Or, and this is one of my favorite, when somebody asks, how do I grow my podcast? All the advice seems to be, oh, just produce more shows more often. I know most people want shortcuts that you're surrounded by every day. I know that. They wish there was one way of creating absolutely everything so they could just put it on repeat and be done with it already. To them, unlike to you, content is a thing to produce in a factory. They don't want the touch of human hands or, in far too many cases, even human minds. It's crazy to think about. They want that end result at all costs. Get me the piece, get me the click, the lead, the sale, get me those numbers. But as Apple's Tim Cook likes to say, we're never focused on the numbers. We're focused on the things that produce the numbers. You understand that. You know that if you want more numbers for your business, get better at the thing that produces the numbers. This should be obvious to everybody. I don't know why it's not. So if you want more widely read blog posts, write better, find better stories, hone a unique, engaging voice, things that, again, you listening to this show want to do. If you want a bigger podcast, focus on the production and the audio. Don't just crank out more, 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 more. So back to the ice cream example for a second, or ideally 
many seconds because I mean, you know, it's ice cream. Why is eating ice cream so different from sweeping your floor? Why is how you think about creating things so different than how most of the industry talks about it? Because you focus on the process itself. It's intrinsic to you, not telic. You care about it. You find joy in the process itself. You do it just for the sake of it. You find ways to improve upon it, by the way, as a result. And yes, you do get better end results because of all that. Funny how that works, isn't it? You don't think about the numbers. You think about and agonize over and stay up late tinkering on and commiserate with friends over beers about and fight tooth and nail for the things that produce the numbers. So what do you call somebody who thinks that way? Craft-driven. And the most craft-driven among us will do some unthinkable things in honor of their work. Oh my god, it's so early. Ah, so early. It's five o'clock. Even my dog, when I got out of bed, he's usually bonkers. He just looked at me and he was like, nah, I'm going back to sleep. I took a trip downtown at the ungodly hour of five in the freaking morning to hang out with Grace Note Coffee, an espresso bar that opened in Boston in the fall of 2015. Grace Note is run by Alessandro Bellino, who goes by San. Now, San's become a bit famous around the city of Boston because of the coffee business he ran before Grace Note, which he called the Coffee Trike. And yes, it was an actual trike, a bespoke, wooden, man-pedaled vehicle with an espresso bar mounted off of it. So I asked him the obvious question, where did that idea come from? Oh man, I don't even know. That thing was, feels like it was a dream. I think I just wanted something mobile and then I was like, okay, well, what's a cool mobile thing? And then I was looking on the internet for tricycles and I saw this one company that builds tricycles out of Amsterdam and they're really pretty. And then I saw another one in New York and I was like, okay, these ones are less pretty. And then I just like kept going into it. And then I saw that there was one person who had a coffee, an espresso machine on it. I was like, ah, oh, that's a good idea. I know about espresso. Why don't I do something that's like that here? And then I was like, okay, so I just started, it really just was small steps. And then I was like, okay, the coffee trike. All right, that sounds... I remember going over the name and going, is that a good name? I don't know. And then I was like really slow. It took me like a year and a bit to get that going too. But I think it just came out of like searching and then going, ah, something not permanent. And then that seemed like a good idea. San would ride the trike around town, looking for good spots to set up shop and fuel the city with caffeine goodness. No easy task, by the way, considering that the trike weighed around 600 pounds and it carried inside it all kinds of coffee and milk and equipment. One time, a car pulled into the bike lane and San wound up T-boning him, denting the door of the car. The trike was totally fine, being the coffee tank that it was. Another time, a cab driver actually flung out his door as San was pedaling past. I wasn't going that fast, but I like hit the door and it sort of dented the door as he opened. He just opened the door on me. 
I was going past him. He opened the door. Do you offer like a, you know, a, a, an olive branch, but in the form of espresso? I mean, how did you? I was just like, you doored me. And he was like, you were on the phone. And I was like, on the, f- what? It's hard to fall off a tricycle that's that heavy. You really have to be hit by something hard. <laughs> <laughs> that's I awesome. Think. Yeah. How would people react to the trike? Because it was such a novel idea. And around Boston, it had a little bit of a halo yeah. of fans and people buzzing about it. How were people reacting when they would come up to it for the first time? Uh, they were great. If they came up, you, you you already knew they had something in common with me or something. Or, or just some inquisitive nature where they were like, if you came up to a tricycle to get an espresso drink, you've got... you've, you've Something something's interesting is going on. So he would park the trike by South Station, the main commuter hub in Boston, and he'd get there bright and early. Or, as I discovered making this episode, incredibly dark out and exhausted and early. And people, by the way, would not only buy from San, but celebrate him. Walking up to a tricycle to get your coffee, spend your money at a, at a, at a there is really interesting. It was very cool. It was nice. And people used to yell stuff all the time. They used to go, son, all the good. Copy trike. Just as I was going down the street, they're having a the time, just wave at people. That was fun. In 2015, San partnered with Grace Note Coffee Roasters, and they opened a brick-and-mortar espresso bar of the same name, which means that he may have given up the trike, but he's tripled his care for craft. For starters, he decided to set up an espresso bar, not a sit-down coffee shop. These are more similar to what you actually find in Italy, San's Italian, although he grew up in Australia. But in Italy and other parts of the world, you order an espresso at the cafe's bar, finish it while standing up, and then head out on your way. Yeah, I think that's sort of a, a bridging the gap a little bit, because standing espresso bars don't really exist that often. I mean, they're not, they're not common in the United States. I don't think I've been to one. Um, I've been to smaller shops, but nothing designed around sort of a standing bar, an experience where there are no seats. Right. Been to some small shops that don't have seats, and but they're not specifically designed to be stood in. Then there's the way in which San thinks about his product. It's the exact opposite of that idea of telic. Whereas a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks is mostly about reaching the moment where you deliver the coffee to the customer more often, more quickly, San is just intrinsically motivated to make great coffee for its own sake. And as a result, He's constantly thinking about and tinkering on the process. And that makes the end product much better and much more delicious. I think coffee is, 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 is a dynamic, but it's very dynamic. It's a, it's a very interesting beverage. I mean, it has a, yeah, I mean, it's very complex. It has a lot of like aspects that can, and, and uh, has a lot of variables to how it's brewed and how it's prepared and how it's tasted and um, how it's, and, and then all, all the facets, like not only preparation, which is what I've sort of spent a lot of my time doing, the majority of it, but like um, it's it's fun at this point to work with the roaster very closely, work with Pat at the roastery and uh, and Ryder and, and everyone in the shop um, because you really get a sense of how, what, what, like what does what to what and then what the result is of that happening at that point in time. You know what I mean? Because you have a, as an agricultural product that has a lot of, it has a lot of culture around it. Like when you're drinking a different, uh, when you're drinking like an Ethiopian coffee, you can sort of taste what that, uh, that country's coffee tastes like based on their like processing method, based on the sort of the variety of, of the coffee or the cultivar. Um, yeah, there's, there's so many things about it that are unique to the country. So you're sort of getting a cultural experience at the same time. Like Kenyans have a specific sorting grade and they have um, 
a couple of uh, cultivars, SL28, SL34, which is very common, which were developed in a lab to be um, disease resistant. So you have like, it's really interesting. Brazilian uh, coffee generally is pulp, is like pulped or pulp naturals, or they have so they're different processing methods, different sort of preparation methods for it. Some coffees and some processing methods like suit different brew methods or, yeah, I don't know if that makes, it's a very complicated system. And then you have like, from farm level to processing to like, uh, you know, exporting, importing, uh, you know, green buying, sample roasting, actually roasting it for uh, sort of consumption. And then you have uh, preparation and all of that, including like the waters, it's not, it's, it's generally like 98, somewhere around their percent water. So it's like, even the water quality is a big deal. Grinding is a huge deal. You know I mean? How there's just so many aspects of it that are, that, uh, uh, a fun to sort of dive into and try to solve it's like a yeah. big it's like a big problem solve yeah yeah and there's so many like you said moving pieces right yep. there's such dynamism behind mm -hmm. the actual moment where you hand whatever mm -hmm. the drink is to your customer yeah. does it frustrate you at all that there's a lot of people in the world that don't view it that way where they're just you know going into the big chains and saying like give me something that's large and has a lot of liquid and cream and sugar and maybe some caffeine and and it's a transaction to them for you mm -hmm. it's you're tinkering it's a process you mentioned the word engaging you know, when you look out to what most of the world views coffee as, does that frustrate you at all? You know, how does how does that affect your, no, your day to day? I just I don't think it's frustrating at all. I think it's just, I mean, the coffee was really shit for a while. I mean, it was really bad. Um, it was really not very high quality. I mean, the co I think coffee tastes, it's it's never tasted any better than it does now, which is fun. I mean, it's never been more carefully processed, more carefully farmed, more carefully picked, more carefully whatever, like profile dried or whatever. It's it's never gotten, and it's it's best now, in, in my opinion. It has like the most clarity, the most detail. Um, people are most knowledgeable. We use, we're actually using technology uh, to assist us in making the coffee taste better. We're living in a time where tons of technology is helping make coffee shops and espresso bars better and better at their craft. In fact, a few years ago, he even competed in an event called the U.S. Barista Championships, where they put lots of the innovation that's happening to the test. So what kinds of things are making coffee better today? Ah, I mean, so many things. I, we, we, we can do, like, we can read, like, moisture content. We can refract the coffee to get it so the, the total dissolved solids of a solution so we know what its extraction percentage is. We know how it, like, what extracts first, what's most water-soluble, what compounds or like chemicals in water extract certain flavor compounds or aromatic compounds out of the coffee there's like science is really sort of helping we know what grinders do we know their particle distribution analysis like exactly well relatively exactly exactly how, how like how even the ground coffee is because you want the same size um, so you can extract as much as you can without over extracting certain particles that are smaller and under extracting big particles that are like boulders we are tasting the same as what the customer's tasting. So we can be sort of, it's, it's, it's so much more, you have so much more confidence when you know what your product tastes like or is, you know what I mean? If you don't know what your coffee, if you're not weighing anything and you're just pouring coffee, then you're open to a whole world of insecurity because you don't know. How could you possibly assert that it's good if you're like, ah, I don't know, I just did anything. Well, I remember the first time, there's no way you remember this because you got so much throughput, but mm. with, with the coffee trike before Grace Note, mm. uh, the first time I ordered from you, yeah. you handed me, I think it was, uh, it, was some, it was some kind of espresso drink, maybe a latte, yeah. and you described to me 
what I was about to taste. And yeah. I'd never gotten that from another coffee shop uh, anywhere. It was always very much like it was written somewhere, maybe on the menu or, yeah. you know, people, I always felt like people assumed that I knew what I was tasting and knew how to appreciate it. But you seemed mm. very content in a very accessible way. Mm. Just describing, you know, you're going to taste something a little bit sweeter here or you know this this blends mm. really nicely with the milk and the latte or whatever like it seemed to be part of the muscle memory and the routine you had to describe it but it wasn't me like i wasn't i didn't feel like the lesser of the two of us where mm. you were like talking down to me it was very much like let me just tell you this is what i experienced and this is what you'll experience too well i think that people uh, don't give themselves enough credit and that's what the thing with the cool thing about the trike was i mean you're trying to empower people you're not trying to belittle them i mean you want them to feel like they're they're confident you want you want to be like i mean that's the cool part about it you can sort of assist people like people feel i think there's a lot of sort of service in anything really where you sort of you're not empowering people to to feel because everyone can taste everyone has the ability to discern things uh, to an extent you know what i mean or or, or to a really extreme extent sometimes. So you're just basically saying, yeah, this is what this is showing up as. Like, if you don't get all those things, that's cool. I mean, you know, but that's what I'm tasting. I think it's just sort of allowing people to make connections, you know, because that's what it's about. It's really sort of, I think good tasters have made those connections enough times that they know they can get tasting notes because they're like, I know that, I know that aroma, I know that. And you can continue doing that. You can make more connections. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's all about relaying something back to something you've previously had. All of us have been working in coffee for a long time, and so it feels very, like, team-based and collaborative, and everybody, like, is equally excited about serving coffee and doing a really good job. So my goal is not to really have anything specific about the shop, but just be, um, you know, breathe more or, like, just feel more peaceful or something like that so that I can... I can perform better, you know, like I really, you know, you just like more time off or more procedures in place so that, that they're, that it feels clear so people can feel okay and feel like they can spend their energy and their sort of conscious sort of movements on doing something well and carefully. Yeah. I mean, that's why I didn't work on the weekends when I were on the coffee track. Cause I was like, I'm not good. If I work every day, I get really tired. I'm, I don't taste as well. I'm grumpy. So like things like that, I think just it's it's all about balance for me. I'd rather um, make sure I'm healthy and happy, and make sure everyone else here is healthy and happy, so that we can we can all do something like spend the, our energy like without clutter, like with some sort of clarity. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's a sign of a good leader, quite frankly. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> We serve three coffees a day. And the first step is to do what they call dialing it in. But dialing in is essentially the process of um, uh, adjusting the variables, which is generally, you know, it's either the weight of the coffee in, weight of the coffee out. So you've got like dry grounds to extraction. Um, and, you know, you're tasting or you're grinding finer or coarser based on how much you want to extract or how much you don't want to extract. Um, so you're basically tasting all the things so it tastes um, as good as it can. So it doesn't taste over-extracted, which would sort of when you start extracting like bitter compounds and drying compounds out of the coffee, it doesn't taste under-extracted uh, where it's like sort of thin and sour. But, you know, we will try to like at least go out to the roastery once every couple of weeks to taste and cup and talk to the roasters. Um, and then they try to come, they always come here, they work here at the same time to taste what's going on in the shop. So it's just basically 
you know, getting the coffee sort of to a place where we're, we're happy to serve it. But San hasn't always been so happy serving it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the trike, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a tough year. The first year was really brutal. How so? Everything. That was a really tough year. That was a, it was very, I was working um, at Toy Row, a restaurant in Harvard Square for the first four months because I couldn't, because I wasn't busy enough on the coffee trike to support the trike and the sort of the fees that were associated. I was also riding it from Cambridge. I had no infrastructure. I had to sort of charge the, the like, you know, as a 55 amp hour lead sealed acid battery on my back. I used to bring it back to my apartment in a backpack, then charge it there, then bring it back to the trike in the morning. I didn't know anything. And then I used to ride the trike for an hour and a quarter down to Dewey Square from Central Square. It was really tough. That was, oh, many times. I was like, I'm only doing this one more year because I need to pay off the trike. This is crazy. And then I did it another year and I was like, oh, this is okay. And then I got a new espresso machine. It was a little faster than the third year I had staff. So why go through with it? Why go through with all the crazy processes and all these steps? Why not just pump out basic product, hit the brew button and be done? Maybe it's the, the delivery of some sort of consciousness, like some sort of, it's like going to eat at a place where the, the chef is as like a sensitive taster or something. I mean, it's more enjoyable because the, the, the sort of spectrum of experience is broader. So, and, and all you want to do, I think, in, in this I mean, is to have sort of a broader spectrum of experiences for yourself and use your conscious in that, in that moment or whatever that is. And that sounds sort of ridiculous, but it's also, it's about people in the end and also just trying to pursue something to its pinnacle. Why not? People do all sorts of crazy shit. You know, there's some great brewers in Massachusetts, you know, like this, and there's, you could drink Bud Light all the time, but a more fulfilling, I think, and more complex and more interesting experience is if you, if you had like something from Treehouse or something from Trillium or something, you know, those breweries are excellent. They do really kind of considered work. I think it's about sort of enriching an experience and make life more interesting. The goal, he says, isn't to hear the praise of others. It's not about inflating his ego like some kind of self-involved artist. And San can get pretty philosophical about his product, but he's still practical about his business. Hmm. I don't know if that's the, the result is to get some sort of immediate feedback, particularly have someone and, and feel like it's, it, it's not being appreciated because uh, people appreciate things in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I think like people just coming into the shop repeatedly is more than enough. You know what I mean, that's great. I mean, you don't... I don't expect any sort of anything else than, than that. And mostly it's really about people. It's about respect for the customer by serving them something that you feel is of the highest quality or, or has a lot of consideration and you can be proud of that. And then it's out of respect for them and yourself. The, the goal of, of Grace Note is not to put your own hangups or your own philosophy and impart it onto the coffee specifically. You're trying to buy great coffee by working with people that know what sort of level you sort of purchase at so he work, pat works with really great importers and exporters well generally just well just importers in the country generally they, they had a great he works with them they send him coffee of, of quality that he would purchase and then all pat does is try to make the coffee as best as possible he's not getting out of the way of the, of the coffee he makes decisions to make that coffee taste excellent and that's a really that's as opposed to, I think there's, there's, there's so many different philosophies with roasting and there's so many different philosophies with roasteries or, and coffee prep. And some of them make it about this story where they just, they get this coffee from this crop and, it's a, and they, they direct trade it. And, and then if the coffee shows and it's not very good this year, because they don't roast it very well, they blame it on the farmer. They go, oh, the crop isn't very good this year. It's not as good as last year. But we're not interested in that. I don't think, I mean, I'm, I, I want, I, mean, I think a really interesting goal is and why people like the shop so much is that 
we're trying to like just present really good coffee to you roasted really carefully without a philosophy in place other than we're going to make decisions to make this coffee like sweet and detailed and interesting we're going to keep going at it until we think this coffee is the best it can be we're not you know i mean that that's the only goal is to is just to be like we don't have any and and then including the technology we use to or the grinders we use but it's like what has the best particle distribution what tastes the best and we always blind test all the new grinders and all the new just everything that we can we're not hung up on like holding on to like something that we that doesn't mean anything we want it to be taste the best for the customer so whatever that means that's what we do you know what I mean like a newer piece of equipment we got we get that immediately and we'll test that out we like is it taste better it does great let's buy it you know what I mean it's really about just trying to you know present coffee without a a philosophy that has any detriment to the coffee because the only goal is to like say this is an agricultural agricultural crop that is very complex and really delicious and interesting how can we do that for it how can we make it the best how can we represent how can we show this coffee in the best possible way that's where you get very good coffee many places you get the idea of good coffee or you get a great brand or you get a great aesthetic experience uh and some have like but you don't often get good coffee you don't get coffee that's prepared well that's the owners don't care often the owners of the shops or the people that put money into coffee shops use it as a they make money from that of course they make it as it's a marketing tool just trying to know as much as you can like in a way that's like oh i can know more about this can this be better can right. this be better not can i make more money from this but can i because it's, it's not a, i don't think there's any competition for something like that then you don't have to worry about competition anymore it's not about fooling people into thinking this is the best thing ever than them going being confused it's about actually really being honest about it now you'd think that somebody would get seriously stressed out operating this way just by virtue of him caring this much about his craft or thinking about and tinkering with every step in the process and not seeking shortcuts doing things the quote right way and on top of it all he's running a business it's his. He's on the hook. So you'd think San would be constantly stressed out. I thought as much too. You know, you have all these people that are coming in and out and you're running a business and you look like you don't have a care in the world. How do you That's get to that point? the easiest part of my day. <laughs> just hanging out and talking is hilarious. I mean, that's the thing. You try to just... People, I mean, down here generally just work a lot. So you try to be like... Or they're, I mean, they just need someone to be like, you know what? You're not normal and that's okay. Neither am I. That's cool. You just embrace the weird. doesn't matter. I mean, everyone's, you know, I think that just, it's the, the fun thing about the shop is that there's, it's about people. It's mm-hmm. about just hanging out. I mean, it's I'm just serving coffee. Yeah. I'm just like tasting things and, and, and I work with really amazing people. I work with really nice coffee. The shop is really set up really well. I mean, I, design the shop so it's it functions well so it's easy to work there i try to make everything as ergonomic for everybody as possible because i don't want i don't want the mechanics of the job to ever be a problem i want i want it to be easy i want i don't want anyone to have a hard time it's already hard enough serving a lot of drinks and dealing with a lot of people so i just yeah i mean i generally have a pretty fun time San and Gracenote serve coffee drinks. That's what they do. But they don't often think about what they do. To San, it's the why 
and the how that matters so much more. Think about your own work. Think about moments of frustration you feel with colleagues, with bosses, with clients, with others who don't quote unquote get it. They treat your creative work as a telic activity. They want you to skip to the end faster. They're after that end result. Get me the lead, get me the sale, get me the next thing, faster and faster, more and more. And who cares about craft? That's a fluffy ideal. I totally get it. It sucks. It sucks to hear that, to experience it, and to feel that others feel that way about your work where you feel so much pride. But it's all based on a way of thinking that centers on the what. You create stuff. That's what you do. But why do you do that? What's the mission? What are you doing for your audience? And how do you go about your work? What's the process? How do you approach it and structure your movement through all the various thoughts and steps that it takes to go from nothing to something in the world to something great when you produce your work? So my challenge to you in the next week is to focus on the why and the how, not only for yourselves, but for others around you. You treat your work with an intrinsic motivation, but others might force it into being telic. So don't just listen to San and appreciate his story on face value. Adopt his approach in some small way. For the why, take 20 minutes this week by yourself or with others to get in a room and discuss a project and take a completed piece that you admire. It could be yours. It could be from another company or even another industry. But put it on the board and just pick it apart. Why did it make you feel that way? Why did you like it or dislike it? Why was that long-form text article so easy to read? What did they do in it? Oh, they use lots of pull quotes and a summary box at the end. Great. How do we incorporate that back into our work? Why did that podcast episode hold your attention? Oh, they launched right into a story and skipped the meaningless hellos and weather banter at the beginning. And so they hooked you from second number one. That's great. Can we learn from that in our work too? For the how part of your job, write down your process, the movement that you go through from start to finish on your own project. And by the way, share it with others. Not only will you learn a great deal, but others will see your process laid before them and start to understand. And it might happen slowly, but to get anywhere, you have to take at least one first step forward. In the end, being craft-driven is all about the process. It's about studying it, tinkering on it, celebrating it, taking pleasure in it, and knowing that in doing all of that, yes, you'll get better end results. Every morning on my commute, I walk past Grace Note, and it's packed. Every afternoon, I go for my afternoon coffee there, and if I don't arrive before 2.30, there's a line out the door. So what can we do as individuals who love our craft to get results like that? In a world where everyone focuses on the what, we obsess over the why and the how. In a world where everyone seems motivated by something telic, we study and downright agonize over what we find intrinsic. Like San, we're in on the secret. We're focused on the process of creation. 
We are craft-driven, and that's unthinkable. Unthinkable is written and hosted by me, Jay Akunzo, and this episode was produced by Chris Higgins. Our theme music is by Sir Tyler Litwin, Esquire. Thank you to Right Side Shirts for supporting us today. You can go to their online store and explore all kinds of great t-shirts and phone cases and watches, all of which were designed by kids. So help support local art programs in need and make sure more kids are given the chance to be truly creative in their lives go to rightsideshirts.org. Unthinkable also has a website. It's true. It's on the internet. And if you subscribe to it, you'll get each episode as soon as it's live, plus other content and exclusive stuff that I only share to the newsletter. Sign up at unthinkable.fm. And by the way, if you get a moment today, please leave your impression of the show in the form of a rating on iTunes. They really help me keep trudging and keep tinkering and keep improving on my craft. Next week, we're back with another side hustle sidebar. This project features money made of an unexpected substance, a Yeti costume, and viral content. What could go wrong? Guess you'll find out next week. Thanks for listening to the show. Bye-bye.